Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, this morning we arrive at the final two commandments, the final two words, before we enter Palm Sunday and Holy Week next week. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, and thou shalt not covet. To bear false witness against a neighbor was primarily centered in a legal setting, in a court where disputes were handled, wrongs were righted, it was an essential and necessary foundation that was required if there was going to be any kind of semblance of a fair or orderly society. In a world where they didn't have DNA evidence, they didn't have video cameras, they didn't have a lot of the ways that we try to arrive at truth, having Witnesses who told the truth about one another was absolutely essential if they were going to live well together. I'm guessing maybe it's just as bad or uh, the same, at least here in the U.S. I don't know, but I, do you notice whenever you watch uh, BBC shows, the crime shows, like how the video cameras are absolutely everywhere? It's amazing. And I always wonder, like, is that, is that happening here? But if you go back in scripture to a time where there was no CCTV, there was no modern investigative methods, if someone didn't tell the truth, the entire system fell apart. It's important for us to hear this word as we conclude the commandments because these 10 words, we'll remember, are not first about private morality but they're about God creating a just and loving community that would enter Canaan, the land that God had promised. And this just and loving community created by God would be a light to the Gentiles, a community that through its very existence, its very way in the world, would point to God, to the life of God, to the life that God envisions and makes possible for humans. The commandments are part of a far larger story than only our life, my life, my choices. It's about the creation of a new kind of community. We don't keep the commandments on our own. We need God to keep the commandments, and we need a community. We need one another. And so now, as the Holy Spirit fills the church, as the Holy Spirit makes us another visible community, the visible body of Christ, in the same way, we are to exhibit within our community the inbreaking reign of God. So incarnation. This is a word we use to describe how Jesus was the human embodiment of the fullness of God. Jesus showed us the full human expression of what being God is, what being a true human is. 
We are to reveal to the world not some vague internal spirituality, but rather what the human community caught up and transformed by God's own life, what it actually looks like. These ten words are radically reoriented in the death of Jesus Christ. Then they're reignited by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then they're set loose in the world as the Holy Spirit fills us with new energy and makes us a new creation who actually live as Jesus lived in the world. And so this ninth word, thou shalt not bear false witness. In this ninth word, we come to a major crux in whether or not we will actually be this transformed reignited, new creation, visible community of God in the world or not? It's a very simple question. Will we tell the truth? In John chapter 8, Jesus said, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in him. And then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the primary distinctions between the people of God, the kingdom of God, and the powers of this world is to be that we are a community who tells the truth. One of the key marks of the church is that because we are a people of Jesus, this Jesus who is the truth, We tell the truth. Because we believe in our deep soul that we are held by Jesus' firm, loving grip, we can resist sentimentality. We can want good for others more than we want people to like us. Because we believe that Jesus holds all power, and because we believe that Jesus is himself the end to every true story, We don't need to shade the truth or manipulate facts to garner power. One of the primary reasons why we worship God every Sunday together here, one of the primary reasons why we come to the Eucharist every single Sunday is because we are committed to the true story of the world. And the true story of the world finds its beginning and its end in Jesus Christ. We come to worship and to the Eucharist because we want to learn how to love God above all things. We want to learn how to be a people of the truth because God is the truth. I began to ponder this week, what would it be like if we truly became people of the truth? What if the churches where slaveholders worshiped had not lied by saying that it was God's will for white bodies to rule over black bodies? What would be different if that lie had not been told in the church? What if we as God's people who confess that God owns everything 
stopped participating in the lie that the purpose of our life is a bigger home, a more prominent job, a larger retirement account? What if we stopped lying by suggesting that when Jesus said to care for the poor and loving the foreigner, he really meant to look out for our own? What if we stopped lying by, as Christians, collectively determining that in our marriages and our politics and our private conversations among those who think like us and in our Twitter feeds and Facebook posts, we paused and heard with a trembling heart God's ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. What if we stopped lying by suggesting that when Jesus said, love your enemies, he wasn't actually talking about our enemies? What if we stopped lying to ourselves and to one another by trying to live as though our happiness can be secured outside of God? Lying by believing that our happiness could be secured outside of the flourishing of the entire community God creates for our shared life of joy. And I think that it may be this lie. That any other desire or pleasure outside of God will fulfill us that is the most diabolical. Because I think it's the root of most of the others. It's the lie from which all other lies spawn. And so we arrive at our 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Because to covet is to desire. Another word that's often used for covet here is lust. It is a desire that has been twisted in a harmful, malignant direction. It's not desire itself, quite the opposite. It's a desire that has gone awry. Some religions seem to teach a detachment from desire, but this isn't Christian faith. God is not the opposite of desire. God is the God of desire. That great Psalm 37 Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delighting in God and finding our deepest desires met, those things are intimately linked together. And I think it is one of our fundamental struggles as humans to believe that fact. Most of our fear, most of our anxiety, most of our running from God most of our lies to one another, most of our violence, most of our grasping comes from the fact that we don't fundamentally believe that God is our deep desire. So coveting is not wanting things. Rather, coveting is the lustful desire that believes the lie, going back to the ninth commandment, that we can grab anything on our own, anything other than God, that will fulfill and complete us. The problem with covetousness is not that our desires are too strong. And too often, Christians have believed this idea. The real problem is just we shouldn't desire so much. 
In fact, the problem is the exact opposite. The problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they are too weak, they are too puny, they are too shriveled. If you've read much of C.S. Lewis, you know that I'm borrowing from him big time here. These are his words from one of his sermons. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think that in a, in a certain way, you could read these Ten Commandments, these ten words, and you could actually hear this final word about coveting and desire, and I think we could hear this as actually the ten desires. We crave God above all imitations, and so we refuse to hand our life over to any false god. We long for God's presence and name and goodness above every false promise, and so we worship God and only God. We want the truth above every dehumanizing lie, and so we refuse to take God's name in vain. We yearn for the rest that comes from God more than all the ways we try to soothe our pain and exhaustion, and so we pay attention to that desire, and we keep the Sabbath holy. We desire good for another's soul and body more than the cheap thrill of using them for our whims, and so we resist adultery and our inclinations toward lust. We long for true pleasure and joy, and so we crave God above every other thing, even good things, trusting God to be our satisfaction. In the collect this morning, that prayer that we prayed, God, teach us to love what you command and desire what you promise. That is a prayer to pray. That is not a prayer of duty. That is a prayer intimately connected to delight. God, teach us to love what you command Teach us to desire what you promise because what you command and what you promise is joy and goodness and life. We become, Augustine teaches us, over time, whatever it is that we love. If we love God and God's truth over time, we become more and more like that God. This is what's really at the heart of learning to be a disciple of Jesus. It's part of what we mean by trying to form ourselves in the way of Jesus. Is that just left to ourselves, we inevitably lend ourselves towards small, easy, trite desires. And given enough time in that reality, we begin to think of those things as the deep truth, and they're a mirage. 
So what we're trying to do as a community of faith in the way of Jesus is we're trying to help one another in the power of the Holy Spirit to learn to love God. This commandment, thou shalt not covet, is an immensely appropriate conclusion because it actually circles us back around to the very beginning. The very beginning, we heard these words, you shall have no other gods before me. Which is really another way of saying, love God. Love God above all things. Love God before every other person. Love God before every other desire. Love God before every other hope. Love God before everything. In Deuteronomy, which recasts the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy sums up the commandments this way. This is the commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And then when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He gave us the very beating heart of the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Everything in our life will be a competition between are we loving God or are we loving something else? Every desire and hope and ambition of our heart will be in some way twisted if it is not first yielded to love of God. So our commandments are bookended by these two lines, insisting what the whole is about. Love God. Love God with all that you have. Love God with every bit that is in you. Love God because this is life. I get asked regularly enough, and I think it's a beautiful question, about what my vision is for the future of all souls. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I struggle with that because I don't, I don't have something that I can map out on a napkin. I will say, though, that regardless of the season that All Souls has ever been in, these lines get very close to the heart of it. That we would be a people who love God with our heart and soul and mind and body. And the reality is there's not really a program for that. The only thing that Jesus really tells us about how we pursue those things is through this word that most of us actually don't want to hear. It's called obedience. In John, Jesus said this, if you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
Now, thankfully, Jesus also told us that my commandments are not burdensome. In fact, and here's the great lie. We think that to go to Jesus is to get lots of burdens added on. Jesus says, oh, you're believing the lie. When you come to me and you obey me, what you do is you lay the burdens down. It is a heavy thing to disobey God's commandments. Not because God is harsh, but because his commandments are life. So after the reading of the Ten Commandments, this is what happens. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. There's something that happens in this moment that I think is very clarifying for us. Maybe you heard it. There's this conflict in what happens when Jesus appears on the mountain after the Ten Commandments are offered that actually runs through the Old and New Testament. Moses tells the people who are trembling before the burning mountain, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then Moses says, God the Lord has come to put his fear upon you. So which is it, Moses? Well, don't you ever feel that way with Jesus? Jesus is constantly showing up saying, don't be afraid. And yet it is Jesus' scriptures that say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the kind of fear that God puts upon us, it's a fear that saves us from ourselves and our delusions and our lies. The kind of fear that God puts upon us is a fear that is transformed by love. The fear of the world, the cowering fear of God that many religious people like to put upon us, that is not a fear that is transformed by love. But when you stand before the holiness and awesomeness of God, the one who actually salvages and rescues us, 
there is a deep trembling in the soul when we encounter something so true, so brilliant, and how it literally burns away all the false lies. And there, transformed by the love of God, we yield our heart, we yield our hope, we yield our desire, and we are finally on the road to being made new. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.